You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Mark Rudd was an early member of the Students for a Democratic Society at Columbia University in the late 1960s, a member of the Weather Underground and the Federal Fugitive in the 1970s. He's currently a teacher in New Mexico where he lives with his family. His first book is Underground, My Life with the SDS and the Weathermen. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you. Mark, this is a a, a fascinating portrait of an American life. You started out, you, you had a, a Jewish upbringing um, in Jewish family, strong family. Talk a little bit about your background before you arrived at Columbia. What kind of kid were you in high school? I, I was kind of uh, uh, what might uh, today be called a nerd, you know, the, uh, uh, some, uh, somebody who uh, reads a lot of books. And uh, I, I kind of fancied myself an intellectual of sorts. Um, I wasn't rebellious in the sense of... Uh, uh, politically active, but um, I, I'd say I, I probably was more affected by the uh, beat poets and uh, Kerouac and, uh, and and by the folk song movement. But that was uh, true of millions of, of of people at that time, millions of teenagers. You describe yourself arriving at Columbia as a nerd, but you looked at that college, and for the first time, you felt a feeling of power. I I felt grown up. I was this kind of kid who who never was very comfortable being a kid, you know. And I had for for as long as I could remember, I'd wanted to go to college, leave home, and to and and to and to, and to be an adult in this adult world, you know. And and suddenly I found myself in this uh, imperial location. I mean really if you look at the architecture of Columbia, it is imperial. It's it's neoclassical pantheons, you know? Um, uh, it's it's uh, uh, it, it's it's um, uh, the top of the world. It's the top of Manhattan. And I, I thought, wow, I've made it. Now when you got there, you had thoughts that I think every kid who arrives in college, every boy who arrives in college has, which is three words, girls, 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 tell us a little bit about your pursuit of women and how that kind of played into your your work and how as a social activist. As a social activist, um, wasn't there a slogan at the time? Uh, girls say yes to boys who say no. <laughs> I think it's maybe the other way around. No, uh, boys who say no means say no to the draft. Well, so it was, um, you know, I. I, I had I didn't have much of a, a high school crowd. I was somewhat of a loner. There were some kind of um, intellectual kinds of kids I hung out with. I wasn't in sports. I wasn't into drinking. I, we didn't hadn't discovered drugs yet. But um, I found a crowd. I like a gang, you know. And they were cool people, and I like to be with them. Well, tell us about this gang. It was the ICV, the first of many uh, little bits of alphabet soup that seemed to run through the, the, the movements. I should, maybe I should have had a glossary of acronyms. <laughs> yes. Tell us about the ICV and how um, you found them. Well, they found me. 
Uh, actually, they were literally, or rather, David Gilbert was uh, was dorm organizing, knocking on doors in uh, dorm rooms. He was a senior, the uh, chairman of the uh, Independent Committee on Vietnam. And uh, David uh, knocked on my door and said, uh, I'm David Gilbert, and can we talk a little about the war in Vietnam? And so, um, plus I had um, uh, known a few people who were... Um, um, sort of on the periphery of the anti-war movement. But I, I was impressed. These were incredibly smart people. You know, they, they had an analysis of what the war was that went way beyond anything I'd read, uh, anything in the newspapers or anything. Uh, prof- the, the professors at uh, Columbia weren't even talking about the war. It, it was that kind of intellectual element which really appealed to you about Absolutely. Them. Absolutely. And, and it was exciting to believe that... that, 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 that uh, we had a role. We as students had a role in changing the world. Very exciting. And, and in fact, tell us about the, the, your first protest. This was on 326-66. There were 50,000 people there. That's almost inconceivable today. 50,000? That's, that actually seems like a small number. You know, when, when, uh, uh, you know, when it, it eventually went up to uh, half a million uh, in New York City at the, the big mobilizations against the war. Um, um, the, <coughs> the difference between then and now was um, that was a result of, of a movement. Uh, and, 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 and the movement got built not spontaneously, but by organizing, people knocking on doors and trying to recruit and trying to uh, engage with, with other people and educate about the nature of the war and ask people, um, you know, do you feel comfortable when your country is uh, massacring uh, Vietnamese for no reason? One of the things I think that readers notice early in this book is the way you write about Vietnam is it it sounds very familiar and very uh, lots more parallels than we've I think been suggested to be true with uh, the current war in Iraq. Both wars of occupation there's there's a similarity. Um, um, the United States goal in both cases was to occupy the country and to um, create a um, uh, 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 a puppet regime origi- uh, 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 in the end. Um, the thing about oc- wars of occupation is that people fight. They fight back. Now, the Vietnamese happened uh, to, to have what I thought was a very attractive ideology. It was uh, socialism and, um, uh, and nationalism. It was get rid of the foreign uh, invader and, uh, and justice for the poor. One of the things that you said that still sounds quite relevant, is that you wanted to be on the side of freedom, not empire. Um, well, here we are, 40 years later, and the empire has progressed. Um, no, I, I, um, uh, I, I, I think that the um, uh, be, being a, a, a citizen of the imperial state is not something I'm proud of, you know? I think that uh, there are too many uh, imbalances, too many privileges, too many uh, lives that are lost and maimed uh, uh, because of this imbalance. You know, every time I walk into a Walmart, I think, oh, my God, people died for this crap. You wrote a lot, quite a bit um, during those days, letters to the dean and they're kind of funny in some ways. They're, they're sweet, and, and they're filled with a kind of, I think, naive kind of self-importance. Could you talk about how you felt writing them then and how you feel looking at them now? 
I think I, w- I did it somewhat tongue-in-cheek back then. I, uh, you know, I, I, here's this uh, freshman, I think I was a sophomore, lecturing the uh, dean of Columbia College who was a, uh, a, 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 a scholar in political science about functional rationality and morality. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of funny at the time. Now, once you got yourself inside the SDS and and you'd been there for a while, you started to notice, um, and you talk about this, the the internecine uh, conflict within the SDS. It seems like the SDS was as much or more in conflict with itself, within itself, as it was with everybody else in the rest of the world. Faction fights, faction fights. See, um, uh, one of the first faction fights I talk about, um, I was uh, intimately involved in, uh, was the... uh, the action faction, the young Turks, the, the young, the, the, the sophomores and juniors who wanted to go quicker and more militancy and more confrontation. So it was the action faction, my bunch, versus the praxis axis, the old guard, the go slow, build the, the base uh, uh, um, organizer, organizers. Tell us about your first act of domestic terrorism as a pie thrower. Well, I did not throw the pie. You did Um, throw the pie. The guy who threw the pie was named Lincoln Payne, and uh, his father, uh, Dr. Payne, was a uh, a, a dentist in uh, Berkeley. (laughs) (laughs) The guy who threw the pie, uh, Lincoln, um, um, uh, demanded that I put his name in the book, and I did. He was there last night at the reading in in Berkeley. Actually, I think a, a, a pie was thrown somewhere else, Madison or maybe Berkeley. I read about it, and um, um, the uh, head of Selective Service was coming to Columbia uh, to talk about uh, his uh, role in uh, procuring uh, soldiers for the war, and um, um, the SDS chapter did not want to uh, do any kind of confrontation. I thought guerrilla theater would be a nice idea, so I... I, I, I found a few other people and uh, we did a little um, kind of uh, uh, act where uh, a uh, a revolutionary um, war uh, fife and drum corps came in playing Yankee Doodle in the back of the stage and while everybody was looking around uh, a uh, a phantom uh, pie thrower an itinerant uh, revolutionary hippie from uh, uh, Berkeley placed a lemon meringue pie in the colonel's face now, after this, you found yourself on what you ultimately decided was the wrong side of the attempt to levitate the Pentagon. Tell us about that protest. Well, I didn't go. And, I that, didn't go. I mean, and that was the know. politics again, wasn't it? Internal. Yeah, more, more faction fighting, more you know, disagreement. Um, <laughs> oddly enough, um, that was actually before. That was a year before. Um, I was more allied at the time with the... Um, uh, the old guard in, at the Columbia SDS chapter. They're my friends, and I, I, I was learning from them. And uh, um, they, they were very much under the influence of a, um, uh, a line that was coming out of the SDS national office, which was, don't go to the Pentagon, don't do national demonstrations, uh, organize locally. Um, as if there was a real natural contradiction between doing the two. So... 
somehow I was I sort of con- got convinced or convinced myself that I, that it wasn't worthwhile going to the Pentagon. And uh, uh, the minute I I realized what had happened there, the, the enormous militant confrontation between the anti-war people, uh, the young people, uh, and 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 the. Uh, the, the military, uh, I, I realized that it was great theater, and I wished I had been there. And I kind of had a realization that that you had to engage in in more militant action and more more theater theatrics. Tell us about your first arrest after you embroiled the Hilton. <laughs> well, actually, it was within a few weeks of the Pentagon. Um, we learned that um, uh, Dean Rusk was coming to. Um, uh, uh, New York, and um, uh, he would be speaking for the Council on Foreign Relations, getting an award, I think, at the New York Hilton. So um, New York City SDS, which was a, um, um, represented a number of chapters at, at, at different campuses, organized a militant demonstration. Um, our goal was to stop traffic in the vicinity of the Hilton and keep the uh, limousines uh, from arriving and and literally uh, uh, to create an act of civil disobedience to uh, shut down the uh, uh, the hotel and um, um, I was with a bunch of other people out uh, running in the streets and throwing bags of cow blood and pounding on uh, uh, on limousines and cars and generally being a, a pain and uh, um, cops were there, and I was arrested by uh, plainclothes cops and charged with disorderly conduct. It was a badge of honor for you, wasn't it? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, gosh. Uh, no, maybe I was charged with... Um, Incitement to rise. Uh, thank you. You know more about it than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's go on and talk about uh, the liberation of Con- Colombia. Tell us about that whole episode, because the way it reads... Is it's like an action set piece in a movie from the small. Yeah, except we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) Well, tell us. You started out as just five hundred demonstrators, and and kind of give us a a, how that how did that feel for you to start so small and to end up with something so big? I think I was a lot of the time I was in shock that it was all happening, you know, because we hadn't planned on doing anything more than violate a. uh, a university rule uh, against indoor demonstrations. We were actually acting in, in solidarity with myself and, and five others who were being disciplined for, for breaking some minor rule, like uh, no indoor demonstrations. And it grew and grew, and, and, it, 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 and it, it, it was kind of like a spontaneous explosion. Um, um, I think it, it, it looked at in retrospect, it, it, it was a moment in which people felt a terrible need to do something. Martin Luther King had had just been killed uh, a few weeks before. Um, The war in Vietnam became obvious. It was like 2006. It became obvious that the United States was not going to win. Uh, Just over a few-month period, right before the Tet Offensive in early uh, 68, uh, there was this feeling that that if we acted, if an individual acted, uh, he or she could make a difference, and and it was happening. So people joined. People joined spontaneously. And there was all these events, you, you know, the, um, knocking down the gym um, um, uh, fence and uh, uh, breaking the window uh, of Low Hall. Try, well, eventually uh, taking over. Uh, um, 
Hamilton Hall and forming a coalition a steering committee with the black students and then eventually uh, being being told to leave and and breaking into the uh, uh, the low, uh, low library the, it was the, the it was the black students who told you to leave though right yeah yeah so yeah oh yeah no it was uh, separation they they had different goals than we did our goal was to um, uh, organize the campus their goal was to make a stand for the Harlem community and and to to shut down uh, to take a, a forceful action uh, and and to say no you cannot build this gym and we always had this goal of base building more more and more so we didn't want to confront students who were coming for for classes the next day so there was, well, I talk a lot in the book about this kind of split of uh, around tactics now could you talk about how your parents felt you know, they're sending you to college and you're calling up and saying, Mom, my first badge of honor, I was arrested. How did your parents feel about this and how did you feel telling them that? Uh, my parents were scared the whole time uh, for me. Uh, I think that, uh, uh, I, I, you know, it, it, I've thought over the years, why did I call them so, so much, you know? <laughs> but you know, it's kind of a Jew, nice Jewish boys call home, you know, I, I just... But then I didn't. For seven and a half years, I didn't call home. So uh, uh, um, it, 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 it was pretty wrenching. The whole thing with my parents was, was very wrenching. No, they were terrified. And uh, they didn't. My father's um, whole stance in the world was, he told me, was don't get involved in politics. Uh, keep, your, keep your head down. Um, I felt um, kind of, I guess, a certain security. Uh, not just within my family, but but just a kind of a, uh, um, I don't know how to say it, maybe entitlement or something that, that, that I, I had the security that I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried about the future. Could you talk about the position of women in, in the new left in New York, especially in the Weather Underground, which you describe as a macho organization? Oh, I, I think the whole drive toward violence and militancy was, was macho craziness. I, I don't think it had very much to do with organizing, which is what we said it, it did. We, we, we developed a kind of a theory uh, that, that the more militant we were, the more people would join us. But there was no evidence for this. Um, um, I, I think we were, we were posturing. I think it's exactly uh, uh, what uh, young men 19, 20, 21 do, uh, which uh, allows them to, to, to be used for war. And, and, and we kind of went down this macho road. Um, um, I'm speaking for myself, my own feelings, I wanted to be Che Guevara. Uh, who proves maybe not to be such a good role model <laughs> in terms of uh, effecting revolution. No. He had already died in, in, in Bolivia. The whole, the whole focal uh, strategy, uh, theory, uh, which was the, the, the basis for the strategy of, of armed guerrilla warfare, which would begin mass revolution, uh, and there was no basis for belief that would work. Although that was, the, they said at the time that, that, that that's what had happened in Cuba, but Cuba was infinitely more complicated than that. Now, you started traveling with the national SDS, uh, kind of you are the the traveling salesman for them. Tell us about some of those years and, and your your somewhat womanizing ways. I was a rock star, you know. And one of the things that happens to rock stars is girls appear, you know. And I was twenty years old, and uh, I had lots of opportunities, and I took them. 
and in spite of this, you ended up with your original Columbia sweetheart. Yes. Sue. <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a true love kind of crazy story. Uh, tell us uh, uh, about how that happened and when that happened, because uh, that brings up some interesting problems of dating a fugitive. Oh, really? Um, in 19, uh, uh, the summer of 1970, I became, well, actually the spring of 1970, I became a fugitive, but um, I found myself in the summer of 70 in, in uh, San Francisco, and um, uh, uh, Sue Legrand was there, and we hooked up, and, and it was such a relief. It was such a relief to have a partner, you know? And uh, why do people partner up? Why do men and women, we're now anybody, why does anybody partner up? You partner, partner up, uh, have somebody to watch your back, you know? One of the things that interests me is that you went back, when you were writing this book, you went back and discovered a lot of your speeches from FOIA requests to yes. FBI surveillance. Talk about the intense and often illegal FBI surveillance and how it felt to see yourself through their eyes some 40 years later. The, um, um, the FOIA documents were really amazing. You know, the extent of the surveillance and also uh, occasionally I'd come upon a document um, where uh, they would make a very good analysis, which I quoted in the book, of, of how badly <laughs> we were doing, <laughs> yes. how terrible our organizing was, you know. And, and I thought, oh, my God, um, they even realized what, what a gift we were giving them. We destroyed SDS and they were gloating about it. Now, um, could one, you had been a, a part of an active member, and I want you to talk about um, the period when the um, Weather Underground decided to start uh, bombing un uninhabited uh, structures. What could you talk about that decision? Were you? I, I was present, but probably in shock. I write about this. It was a meeting that took place in Mendocino uh, in May of 1970. Uh, um, two months after the uh, townhouse explosion. And I was on my way down in the organization, but I was allowed to come to the central committee meeting for historical reasons, you might say, because I was one of the founders. And I was also in, in New York at the time of the townhouse. Uh, so I picked up the pieces. Um, the, um, there's a lot of criticism of the townhouse, rightly, uh, as, as 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 being what was called the military error, meaning there there was a crazy idea that was propagated by Terry Robbins and 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 JJ John Jacobs. Now, now of, just, of, to, just to be clear, the 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 townhouse was the townhouse in New York that where where three members of the Weather Underground were killed trying to build a bomb. Just to just be clear. So go on, go on. Yeah, uh, March of 1970, uh, a, a, a unit of the Weather Underground was building bombs which were, uh, were destined for a non-commissioned officer's dance at Fort Dix. Uh, fortunately, uh, they uh, went off prematurely and three of our own people were killed rather than um, a much greater tragedy of uh, innocent people being killed and uh, probably incredible repression and, and, and dissolution of the uh, uh, anti-war movement. Had those bombs gone off, so um, there there was a a, 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 a belief uh, among few people that the, the heavier actions we could do, the better. And that was the one moment when we approached terrorism in a um, 
uh, a traditional sense of attacking innocent people. After that, the idea was don't attack any people. No one, no life should be lost. Um, myself, I, I, I acquiesce to this. In retrospect, I looked at it. I look at it and I, I say, uh, well, it's ridiculous. It's it's like uh, bombing light. What's the point? You know, why why not go all the way and say that the strategy had diverted us from mass organizing, which was what needed to be do, done at the time. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this book is your perception that you knew early on what was that things were going wrong. Could you talk about that sinking feeling as you yourself were thinking, sinking through the ranks? What was going through your mind? Well, I, you know, um, um, I experienced my own... I experienced my doubts and, 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 and my fears more as a, as a weakness rather than as a, a clear notion that the strategy was wrong. It took years for me to be able to break with the, the strategy. Um, um, but but I, I said, well, I said to myself, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just, the strategy's right. I just am not strong enough to carry it out. I'm not a, a true revolutionary. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not who I posed. I, I knew I was posing. I was posturing a lot, and 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 I knew it wasn't right for me. But um, you know, the the, the the one of the, the there's an interesting phenomenon which I think is now being called sort of cult-like behavior, where you have ideas and you're loyal to those ideas. And and you're overly loyal. You know, you're you're loyal to the group. You're loyal to your comrades. You don't want to break. And I I think that that having gone through all these faction fights and all the arguments about armed struggle versus mass organizing or whatever the arguments were, I I I, I couldn't break with with my comrades. I was loyal, but I also had was conflicted in that I felt I couldn't do it anymore. Could you talk about the kind of cult-like uh, experience? Well, there, there were there were many. I'm Sue sorry? called it the bell jar. Yeah, my my partner Sue um, was very good at coming up with uh, sarcastic names, and and the the idea was airless. You know, you're you're stuck with with people uh, in 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 in, in an underground apartment or you're, or in a, a collective or before that. You're, 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 you're stuck in this isolated little group and, and your thinking becomes kind of inward looking and, and any opposition on the outside uh, is a threat, you know? It's very cult-like, it's very cult-like, it's airless. And um, a lot of people left. And, and uh, uh, in a way, I, I, I honor those people who left, the ones who left earlier or the ones who didn't even join us, I think were probably more sane you know, there's a lot of 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 of, of going over the top. You know, uh, it, with our our feelings, we hated the war in Vietnam. We wanted to act on it. We thought that by acting on it, people would see how deeply we believed this, our opposition, and therefore would join us. Of course, that's not organizing. It seems that a lot of your bravado was, I think, the result of fear that that you felt. Could be. I never. I don't think I write about it that way, but it, it, it could very well be. 
it's well, you do write about feeling afraid at at some times. Yes, yes, but bravado as a result of fear, possibly, possibly. Could you talk when, once you became a fugitive, and you actually decided to to leave the life behind? Talk about the what happens to somebody who's used to being active, who's used to being a re- rebel, and all of a sudden finds himself like working at this drudge job in an anonymous identity. Well, ironically, in a way, it was a bit of a relief. I didn't have to play at being Mark Rudd anymore. So it was kind of nice to be out learning a trade, you know, like I learned construction skills. I also worked in factories and a shipyard right here in the, in the Bay Area. But um, uh, in, a, in a way, I, I, it was, oh, man, I didn't have to be the Mark Rudd, the media figure. I didn't have to do interviews anymore, you know. <laughs> um, so I kind of liked that, that kind of anonymity. But on, on the other hand, um, um, I, I still uh, long to be part of the mass movement because I still realized the whole time, and, uh, and I've never not realized that, the ma- uh, that building a mass movement is what needs to be done. That's what organizers do. And so over the years, I, I, I grew more and more frustrated, realizing that I was accomplishing nothing but keeping myself uncaught, survival. Could you talk about the, what you call the encirclement? Well, I, 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 I was gone, but it had to do with a, an apartment in uh, San Francisco that um, I had lived, and a lot of people were still living. It was about a year later after I'd left the organization, actually. I left the organization in 1970 and set out with Sue um, on our own. But we were still in touch. But um, this apartment that I lived uh, in on uh, Pine Street in San Francisco um, was, was busted. Uh, but uh, um, uh, there had been a warning um, because it, it, it had to do with the connection. I, I'm, I'm a little foggy on the, on the details because I wasn't really involved, but there was some connection between the house and, and a car, and there was a possibility that the, the car must have been identified by the police, something. Now, um, could you talk about what turning yourself in what led to that decision, and, and how did that feel, and, and what was the result of doing so? It took me years after I decided to, to turn myself in uh, where were you to when, actually do it. When, where, where were you when you first realized that that's what you needed to do? Um, I think I, I probably first felt it consciously um, on April 30th, uh, 1975, uh, the day that um, uh, the Vietnamese uh, liberated uh, uh, Sa- uh, Saigon and and the Americans finally left Vietnam, and I realized that I I, I I would allow myself the thought that now the war is over and this is absolutely pointless. So, and it took me a, two and a half years more <laughs> to turn myself in because of not wanting to jeopardize anyone. And how did you go about doing this? I mean, did how did you did you contact a lawyer and then have the lawyer set it up? Tell us a little yeah, bit about some yeah. of the details. No, I, I talk about this in the book. The um, 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 I contacted a lawyer, a trusted uh, Jerry Leftcourt. Uh, he had been my lawyer uh, on a number of cases um, before I went underground, and um, um, we talked about the various 
possible possible additional charges I might have, and also what the mechanics of turning myself in were. And he started talking to um, various prosecutors who had jurisdiction. One of the things he told me at the time were the details, which I hadn't known, of why the federal charges were dropped back in 1973. So we started talking in... Uh, 70, I'd say early 77. And um, uh, it, it took me a long time. Uh, I, I had to learn patience, you know, um, before I, I, I knew that no one else would be in danger from my turning myself in. Um, but um, um, it actually was a lot simpler than I thought. The other thing to know about the political context of the time was uh, 1977 was the first year of the Carter administration. And um, the United States people, the American people, just wanted to put the war and Watergate and the whole stuff behind, you know. And and uh, Carter's uh, uh, first few years in office reflected that. They had an amnesty for uh, people who had gone to um, uh, uh, Canada and fled the draft. Uh, there, there was a... There was not a, a desire for revenge. And so the Justice Department, for example, did not bring uh, worse charges against me. Now we're, we're in a, the 21st century. We still, there still seems to need, be some need for change. Can you talk about what kind of advice you would give people, what you did right, what you did wrong, what people can do now? To well, in a way, the, change? the book is a... a uh, um, uh, uh, sort of uh, the story kind of um, is is one of of good organizing followed by bad organizing followed by even worse organizing, and uh, those are the three parts of the story. Um, I, I think whatever we we do, we have to build a mass movement. Whether it's a a mass movement for uh, uh, healthcare, uh, universal healthcare, or for uh, uh, free uh, universal higher education or for uh, uh, to cut the military budget uh, to, uh, to, to create uh, um, uh, inter uh, international law rather than war. I mean, all of these things take mass organizing. And in a way, Obama's, uh, Obama's uh, election was the product of mass organizing. It was a, 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 a very traditional, effective Get out the vote campaign, and it worked. And now there has to be issue uh, uh, mass organizing from the left uh, to push him. Uh, this is a great opening uh, time. But everything that, that we do has got to be measured uh, against the standard. Does it help build a mass movement? That is our goal. That's our means. It's, 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 it's an element of democracy which is offered us. I'm not saying electoral candidates and all that isn't useful. All useful. I also advocate complete and total nonviolence because of the uselessness of the kind of stuff I was involved in. I've been speaking with Mark Rudd. He was a member of the Students for a Democratic Society, The Weather Underground, a federal fugitive, and his new book is Underground, My Life with SDS and the Weathermen. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thank you. This was a pleasure. It was. Thank you.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.